So let's jump from the family business. Did you tell your dad you're just leaving and peace out? That uh, that was one conversation, I think. He wanted to charge something like a dollar per day per person, which is sounds good if you get a, a million a people. Right. If we get all the therapists in the United States, it's like, yeah, we're probably not going to do that. I'm Carl Meyer. My company is Abundant. Abundant is uh, really kind of a co-CEO service offering. And so I've been through a lot of different uh, situations through my career, some rapid growth, one 10x in three years and a couple of 5x growth uh, sales, top line growth in three years and a number of other things. I've done uh, investment banking, consulting, worked for large banks, started two software companies. And what I do now is kind of take all those lessons learned and experience and help companies that want to grow and improve their bottom line and make their life a little easier. So that's what I do. So did you just put random company ideas on like a dartboard and throw them randomly? Because it sounds like you're all over the place as far as your experience. Yeah. You know, it'd take a little while to kind of walk through the the history, but there's uh, a reason for each move at the time that seemed to make sense. You know, I started in out of my MBA program and kind of corporate life consulting and then a big bank. And then my folks uh, kind of twisted my arm into working for the family company. And after five years, you know, ended up going my separate way on that, did entrepreneurial stuff. Yeah. How about, we'll go back to your experience, I guess, when you graduated your MBA and then when you were growing, I guess, working in the family business, because that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. So I got out of my MBA here at Rice uh, in Houston in 85, which was one of the oil downturns. And I was lucky enough to get a consulting job and uh, was doing mortgage banking, mortgage consulting, and Texas Commerce Bank was one of my big clients. So I ended up taking a job with them after a while. And so that was kind of my big company experience. Been about five years there. And then my dad had been selling valves in the oil field. And so when the downturn hit, he by default became an entrepreneur. And so as his company uh, grew, he needed some some assistance, you know, getting it where he wanted to be. So kind of twisted my arm a little bit and said, say, you know, come help and be the CFO. And so I did that. And what was the company? Can you tell us about the company and what it was? Yeah. Yeah. It was called KLM International and it was a distributor of pipe and valve and metal objects for oil field and flow control. So we'd sell all over the U.S., but also all over the world. And, you know, the company, when I from when I joined in the next three years, we grew revenue 5X. So we're able to ramp it up, bring on a lot of people, expand the footprint. How did you do that? Because that's the people who are listening in. They want to be successful like yourself. Mm -hmm. So when you're going into the family business and being able to, you just kind of brush over it, that's like 5X, whatever. But that seems like a big deal. Like there must, there must have been some changes <laughs> that you incorporated and your dad made you basically come there and help them. Yeah. You know, one of the things is if you're growing rapidly, you know, you've got to deal with cash flow faster you grow, the more cash you use in most businesses where you're offering a terms to your customers and they don't pay you right away, but you've got to pay your people and your vendors. So you've got to work with the bank. And one of the key things with working with the bank is keeping them informed of you know where you are financially, financial statements, 
having good accounting records and how much inventory to have. So one of the things I, I did immediately was put uh, systems in place. We went from a company that was run at best on spreadsheets. You know, there was a list on one spreadsheet of who we owed money to and another spreadsheet on a different computer at the time that had a list of who owed us money. And that was it. That was our accounting system. Was it just you and your dad? The company was founded with three people, but by the time I joined, uh, we had about a dozen. And it was actually had a second location at that point and still being run on those two spreadsheets. So I brought in a, kind of a small ERP system so we could track the inventory and put that into invoices. It was, a, you know, it enabled us to get a lot more credit from the bank. And so that allowed us to sell more, to grow more, hire more people. And so we had about 25 people two years after I joined. So we doubled the amount of people that allowed us to grow the sales dramatically as well. And so how long were you there? Five years, five years. So from 85 to 90? Uh, so 85 to 91 when I was, was when I was doing the bank, the consulting, and then the EY, then the bank, which is now part of Chase. And then so 91 to 96 is when I did the family company. Well, okay. So let's jump from the family business. Did you tell your dad you're just leaving and peace out? That, uh, that was one conversation, I think, but, uh, you know, it took over a year to really kind of fully, uh, go through that process. It's very traumatic to, you know, I mean, it's kind of like a heresy to uh, leave the family business. You say, you know, but I don't think a lot of us do. I can only imagine trying to talk to your dad about that. Can you tell us a little bit more in detail, like working with the family and having to leave the business, especially, I guess, after you growed it, at least it, it wasn't as bad. It could be way worse if it was going the opposite way. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a complicated situation. My, my mom and I shared an office and my sister was in sales and my dad was the CEO and he was our lead sales guy as well. And, you know, so we, we had a lot of good stuff going on. We were selling and growing, but we had some issues about different opinions on inventory and how to finance inventory and what kind of risk that posed. And that was one of the big things that, uh, you know, what we ended up dealing with. And one of the major reasons I ended up leaving the company is, you know, we had a very significant inventory that we were financing with debt. And it was inventory that wasn't turning as quickly as I thought it should be. And so my dad and I just never saw eye to eye on that. So that was really the crux of why I ended up leaving. Did you think there should have been no debt on it? Or what was your solution versus what he was thinking? You know, having inventory to me is a means to an end. It's the, the, the end is enabling sales profitably. You know, if you hold an inventory item for two years, I mean, you've got a lot of cost buildup. You've got interest costs, you know, you've got insurance costs, you've got warehouse costs, you've got the cost of counting it, every inventory and you know, all sorts of other things. And that's very different than saying, well, I'm going to hold the piece of inventory for on average three months. And then I'm going to sell it. The economics of that are just very different. And so is the risk profile. If you say, well, I want to hold the inventory, but we don't have to borrow money. You know, that's our equity. And so, okay, well, you can take the risk. That's the way you want to do it. But if there's a downturn and you've borrowed money against your inventory and sales slow down, well, then the bank says, whoa, your ratios are all, all upside down. We're going to call the note. And in 2000, there was a downturn in the, the oil industry and sales dropped off pretty dramatically and the bank called the note. So bank ended up owning you know, not only the inventory, but they took basically the whole company. 
company shut down at that point. So it's certainly a case when you, you don't want to be right, but it's that was my fear. And that was the basis for the discussion with my dad. Okay, so it did grow. You're saying basically five X in those three years you're there, but you saw the writing on the wall in a couple of years. And so you left before that actually happened. Right. So I left in 96. So it was four years before that downturn actually hit. But you know, it took a while just to kind of rebuild the uh, family relations a little bit. I mean, they never went to like, not seeing each other holidays, which I've seen other companies that have gotten that far. But it took a while to kind of get everybody to let everything go, and move on down the road. No, I mean, that's an important lesson to think about because people don't think about the leverage. It's just really going to, it's going to either help you that much more or hurt you that much more. It makes a lot of sense what you were saying there. And obviously, unfortunately, that ended up happening. Mm. So they ended up just foreclosing or did they close yep. on their business? Okay. Yeah, it was a chapter seven liquidation. It was over. You know, now from my dad's point of view, the good news is he went on and uh, was a sales rep for some other companies and he ended up making more money a year than he had been making with the company. So there was some silver lining to it all, but, uh, you know, certainly a whole lot of stress as well. That sounds like it. Well, let's jump back to your story. When you left the company, what else could we pull from your experiences? An entrepreneur that's listening as far as it seems like you said, you jumped around a little bit here. Right. So, you know, when I left, I tried some entrepreneurial endeavors, did a little bit of uh, consulting, and then ended up starting my MBA concentrated in information systems. So I started a uh, software company in 99, which of course, uh, some of our listeners will recall that's the uh, dot-com boom back then. And so I used uh, some of my experience from working with my family company and I started a uh, B2B marketplace for industrial products, particularly like pipes and valves. And you know, I had a patent pending for the matching process that we're using. So it's pretty cool and raised some money from investors. And of course, in 2000, I had my second round of funding scheduled to close the month after the dot-com crash. And so that slowed down the investors quite a bit after the uh, dot-com crash there. Why would you schedule it after the crash? Shouldn't you have just scheduled it before it? I sure should have. I don't know why I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Might have worked a little bit better. But uh, it's amazing, you know, how hindsight worked. Yeah, it seems like basically kind of just did a tech side to your dad's business where you're connecting businesses, it sounds like. Could you talk to us why you're interested in the B2B there versus like a business to consumer, which is a B2C business? A lot of times it's what you know. You find opportunity based on the areas that you have experience and connections. And I'd never worked in a B2C environment. I'd always worked in a B2B environment. So it's figuring out the next whatever LinkedIn or Facebook wasn't something that was I didn't know as much about how to do that. Well, I guess your dad's business was B2B as well. So that's what you're saying. You're staying in that same kind of space. Right. Absolutely. It makes sense that it's what you knew at the time. But I always just like to point out the differences, like if it was a conscious decision at some point or not, because it's a lot more maybe lucrative or easier to deal with when doing a B2B business versus a B2C. I don't know if you feel that way or have any experience in the B2B versus B2C. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're different marketing approaches, different marketing mentalities, even, you know, skill sets to a certain degree to, you know, reach a B2C market. And nowadays, everybody's on the internet, everybody uses Facebook and Instagram and what all the other apps. So, you know, if you've got some amazing tools to reach consumers that 
really just didn't exist 15, 20 years ago. So world's changed. From that business, your funding, so you, you didn't get the funding, it sounds like, obviously. And then what happened from there? Where did you go and what happened with the company? The business plan, as so many in the dot-com era were, you know, is build it now and the revenue will come later. And since we just didn't have the revenue to support the overhead, I just went ahead and shut it down. And so I did uh, was helping some other people with their businesses, a couple of other tech companies, and ended up helping a consultant that I uh, knew. And he was working with healthcare, and he's he had these spreadsheets. He was trying to collect all this data. And so I was helping with the spreadsheets. And the next thing you know, like, you know, why don't you just put this on the internet so you can collect this from the hospitals you're working with, and you won't have to go pick up the disk and all that kind of stuff with uh, your spreadsheet. It's like, we can do that. I was like, sure. And so next thing you know, I'm writing code and uh, and we've started another business. So that's how I kind of made the leap to my second business, software company. Uh, that was called Therapy Track? Therapy Track. And what it did was focused on the people working at the hospital, particularly in like ancillary areas therapy. So if you picture a small physical therapy clinic, you've got the manager and they look around, they got three or four or five therapists. You can just see if they're busy and one of them's not busy, you say, hey, why don't you go home early? The rest of us cover it. That's kind of how you manage personnel in a, a small therapy clinic. But when you get to a major hospital, and here in Houston, we've got quite a few in the Texas Medical Center, they've got 300 therapists in their physical therapy department spread across three buildings, and multiple floors. and You have no idea you know, who's busy, who's not. And so what we did was put a uh, tool together to let the manager and also the workers see how they're doing against their peers and help the managers manage that way. How many people did you get up to and what was like revenue like? Let's see. We got one point we had hospitals in 14 states, UCLA, West Coast, Stony Brook on the East Coast, a bunch in between. See, it really was a small number of people. I think we had five people at the peak. So it really was a very, you know, it's a niche business. It wasn't ever going to be Facebook or Microsoft buying it out. But we did have some different perspectives, my partner and I, on how to price our services. And he'd come out of the staffing industry, which in the staffing industry, you mark uh, your people 25% and you're going to make a lot of money. But he brought that same approach to the software business. There's really no direct expenses in software to mark up. And so the, the math just didn't work out right. And he and I went back and forth on that for about two and a half years until I finally said, fine. We brought in some investors and took my part of it out, let him keep running it. What is he wanting to charge and what were you wanting to charge? He wanted to charge something like a dollar per day per person, which is sounds good if you get a a million a people. people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Everyone in the world. <laughs> right. If we get all the therapists in the United States, it's like, yeah, we're probably not going to do that. Concepts like cost of customer acquisition, and total customer value, you know, these things were things that were outside of his world. And the whole idea that we've got to keep updating keep developing the web, you know, the, the software, the web service was just something that didn't resonate with him. So we ended up uh, going our separate ways 
with that. I was like, you know, we've got to talk about value pricing. We've got to do think about our long-term development costs and marketing costs. I'm bringing in some customers. That doesn't cost anything. It's like, well, it kind of does, you know, because you want to get paid. So you're saying he wanted like a dollar per person per day. So what was that? What was it equaling out to like per month, I guess, or whatever? So we get an idea of what the price difference was. $30 a month for a person. And if you've got, just kind of make the math simple, you've got a medium size. It's probably pretty decent size hospital. It's going to have a hundred therapists. You know, great. $3,000 a month. That's a nice sale. And if if you keep that customer for two or three years, well, that's good. But with reasonable sized hospitals, it's an 18 month to two year sales cycle. You've got to have people following up and touching base with them. So, you know, you've got a significant investment in marketing to do that. And then you've got to develop and maintain the software. And all of a sudden, $3,000 a month for a hospital doesn't sound like that much once you start saying what, what costs, what overhead we really have to do to support. You were thinking it should be more like how much per month for one hospital. Right. So instead of 3000 you know, we need to be doing like five times that from this hospital because we're saving them. If we can cut two people out of that hundred as an effective cost reduction for them, you know, we're far more than paid for ourselves. It seems like it makes a lot more sense the way you're thinking about it. He almost seems like has that business to consumer kind of relationship again, where a hospital, they don't really give a damn, I feel like, how much they're going to be charged, really. And I've heard notoriously that the healthcare industry, yeah, especially hospitals, adopting anything takes forever to try to get them to go ahead and switch it just because regulation or whatever. So I could see that from your point of view and wanting to charge more because let's face it, they can afford it. Mm -hmm. Right. What happened with the company after you left? It continued on until, I guess, for about 15 years, but it never took off. There were typically two people working in it for most of its history. And it really became kind of his consulting with a, with a software add-on. So after that, you went to do what? I ended up doing some financial stuff, did some mergers and acquisition work with a investment bank, guy that I know from undergrad had started an investment bank here in town. And so we we're helping companies and this was kind of 06, 07, 08, when things were taken off. There's a ton of money floating around in the marketplace. So there's a ton of mergers and acquisitions. My original pitch was, hey, I'll help you grow the companies, make them more profitable. And then once they're ready, then you can go sell them. Pretty quickly, he's like, hey, Carl, you know, I got so much work here. You know, don't worry about growing them. Just help me, help me sell them. And so we were doing great for a while. And then, of course, 2008... One day the music stopped, all our deals disappeared. And so then it was a whole different world at that point. Do you have any kids or wife? Yeah, I've got uh, two kids. I'm divorced at this point. My kids are 21, 19 now. So and that was about 10 years ago. Yeah, because I'm just trying to get a feel because it seems like a lot of the businesses, like they come to, maybe it's not as abrupt as it sounds, but, or, you know, I don't know how long you were transitioning between these jobs or whatever, but what that must have been like at family at home, if you're kind of jumping from these, because most people just think about getting the nine to five, working, you know, 40 hour weeks and having a settled down job. But it seems like you were jumping around the different types of industries and businesses. I mean, what was the work-life balance like? Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. When I was uh, working for the big bank, they worked pretty hard, but you had steady income, you had all the benefits. And then when I went over to my folks' company, you know, again, benefits, steady income. So when I left that, that was my first real taste of 
okay, relying on my savings to pay the bills. I'm going to have to make something happen here. Yeah, that worked okay. I was able to uh, manage that, get some investors for that first software company. And even for the second one, we were able to uh, use uh, some of the cash flow from the consulting we were able to do. So, but when the, uh, when the first startup crashed in the dot-com crash, yeah, that really was, uh, that was a hard blow because it had looked really good. A lot of traction with uh, buyers and sellers, investors, everybody saying, man, this looks awesome. I had a law firm that was floating, you know, all the legal expenses because uh, they're like, man, this looks like great patent. So when that crashed, that was a lot more than just the financial impact. That was about the uh, personal and psychological impact, too. Then uh, 08, when the, the financial sector crashed, that was I kind of got pretty entrepreneurial pretty quickly there, too. You know, it's like, OK, we've got to find some revenue to keep things moving here. The investment banking stopped. And then I stumbled across an opportunity. A friend of a friend said, hey, there's a small company I know. They're looking for a CFO. I've done that before. So I went and talked to them. And I was like, you know, from the sounds of it, it sounded like they're way too small, didn't really need a CFO. But, you know, maybe there was some consulting project there. But as I got to know the owner and CEO, he really helped me kind of see things in a little different light. He, he was a serial entrepreneur, had been there, done that. One of the companies he'd started, he grew it, sold it, took a VP position with the acquiring company and helped grow that and sell it for $2.5 billion cash. So that was uh, the kind of guy that this was. He really knew how to grow companies. He had a plan for, for growing this company and He's somebody that I really wanted to work with. So I took the CFO role and it was a tiny company at the time. They were you know, just over a million dollars of revenue at that point. But then we were able to grow the company 60 to 70% per year, four years in a row. And this is no outside capital. This is no intellectual property, not high tech. It was just a service business working with oil and construction companies to help protect their workers from disease and when they were working in rough environments. And what was the name of the company, just so people get an idea? Sure. It was uh, Mosquito Zone International. Mm -hmm. So all the work was overseas. So you'd picture a big oil company going into sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, someplace like that. And they're putting expensive engineers there who were getting sick from foodborne illness, waterborne illness, mosquito-borne illness, you know, malaria, things like that. They've got to medevac them out. It's really expensive to medevac people back to Australia, the States, or wherever, Europe. And so we were able to make it dramatically safer for these people. So like one place, you know, we cut the medevacs in half the first year and in half again the second and third year. So by, you know, they're having like 50 medevacs a year down to like one or two. You know, it was really able to provide some value. But what it really, what I really ended up learning was it was about how you brought in people and how you led people, how you motivated people that is really what helped us grow this company so fast. How do you motivate those people? Can you give us specific examples so we hopefully can do the same thing for our companies? Yeah. And just to kind of give an analogy, you know, there's about a half dozen different things you can do to prevent malaria. And if you do one of them, you're going to have almost no effect. But if you do all six consistently, then you're going to have a dramatic change in the, in the results. You're going to have some really reduce the effects of malaria. Motivating people is really the same type of thing. 
it's not a single task you're doing. It's not a single behavior, but it's a group of different behaviors. One of the things that you know is really important is you're making it about something bigger than just profits. I've worked for some accounting firms in the past and everything kind of comes down to you know the bottom line. Hey, we're making a decision. Well, how does that affect the bottom line? And so it ends up being a pretty short-term perspective and you know the results can not end up being what you might like it to be down the road. You know, with the mosquito zone, one of the things we did was say, you know, it's not about us making money. Sure, we want to make money, of course, but, you know, this is about helping the people, keeping people safe from these diseases. And with a a constant reminder, because for me, I definitely get it. That makes a lot of sense. And when you say it at that point in time, like maybe that day that motivates me, but I feel like maybe the next day I forget about that, right? Because I'm having a bad day and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just that you just end up forgetting. Because, yeah, I think it's great that y'all did have that concept and thought. Right. And if that's all you do, yeah, it, that's not enough. That has to become part of all the decisions you make. If you do it right, you can make all the decisions kind of auditable. You know, there you say, okay, here's how we make decisions. Here's the values, the way we evaluate decisions. And so whether it's the CEO or it's a first level supervisor, or if it's just somebody doing the work, we all have to follow the same rules to make decisions. And if we, even if, if it doesn't work out, it's like, well, we thought that this process we were going to use for coordinating people was going to work out, but it didn't. We learned something new and it, it all broke. So we had to start over and rebuild the system. Well, if you say, okay, I understand it didn't work out, but did you follow our guidelines, our rules towards helping people? Well, yeah. Yeah. Everybody can look at it and said, yeah, well, you followed the rules. That's the way we should make that decision. Given what everybody knew at that time, that's a good decision. Great job. Sorry, it didn't work out. Let's move on. Let's fix it. A lot of companies, it's like, well, that didn't work. We need to blame somebody. There's going to be a scapegoat. The fact that the, the decision didn't work out. So that to me is a big reason why people stay motivated or they lose motivation. They start to become afraid. What were they becoming afraid about? Because, yeah, I get the the one constant reminder about, hey, you're helping people and it's bigger than the bottom line. But I think I lost you as far as what, are, what other motivation techniques there were. And- okay. Well, one of them is values become those rules. So if we say we value work-life balance, well, we really have to make that part of all our decisions. And then another piece is when you, you're a supervisor, how you work with your people. A lot of people are trained, they go through school, they become an expert in a particular subject, and so they know the answer. Well, in reality, you know, business is really complicated, moves so fast, there's so much information. You know, the supervisor or the manager doesn't really have all the information from the customer, from the vendor. What we're doing at Mosquito Zone was kind of flipping it. You may have expertise, but we're not expecting you to be the expert. We're expecting you to help coach the people below you to report to you and help them learn and make good decisions. So that's an, in the perspective of our values and towards the helping people stay healthy. So we do all those things and, and we build our information, both financial and operational data to help support that. And there's about six major different pieces that all have to work together to really make an exceptional company that grows very quickly and, you know, is a really safe, good place to work. Does that help a little bit? 
Yeah, I think those are important concepts to think about as far as like just keeping motivated. And because again, if you're just thinking about the bottom line, it's, it's more than just that. But if you don't mind for the last few minutes, I just want to touch on what you do today. I guess you Mosquito Zone, can you tell us about that and what your day-to-day is like? With Mosquito Zone, the owner, this serial entrepreneur, he got sick, like never, ever come back into work again and has since passed away. So another family member, wonderful person, but very different perspective stepped in. And very quickly, the company went from growing 60 to 70% a year to decreasing even faster than that. So it it went down faster than it went up. And just from the change in the leader, that was a a really eye-opening experience for me. What happened there real quickly so we can learn from them? It's where you were doing all these six different pieces, all the information, decision-making, coaching, all these different things. As soon as the leader stops doing them, it all falls apart. Yeah, exactly. And now people are afraid of getting fired, being blamed for stuff. And so, you know, it's now you're working in a bureaucracy and it's all CYA instead of helping people and everything stopped. We had turnover, you know, had been very, very low. And all of a sudden it just went, everybody was bailing left and right. So we're losing, you know, all our experience. That's when I left as well. So since then, my role has been to take those things that I've, I've learned over all these different experiences and help companies apply them so that they can grow and be successful. I work with one company for five or six hours a week, another for a day and a half a week, another will just be uh, monthly meetings to kind of keep them on the right track. And are you just charging them per hour or how do you get paid now? Much prefer a fixed fee per month. So if, you know, one month got more issues to deal with, well, that doesn't mess up your budget. In some cases, if they've got a particular goal they want to reach, like got some companies that are, you know, they want to grow to a point so they can sell. So there may, we might have kind of a success fee as part of the arrangement as well. Like the monthly mentoring sessions or just a you know, relatively small fixed fee as well. And I mean, this sounds really interesting to me. So how did you, as far, did you just start telling your old clients or how did you start the business there and telling them, hey, I want to do this position. And I'm just trying to think, yeah, anyone who's listening, if, if they have maybe been in a couple of different companies, they can use their experiences to help other companies that don't have any idea or have those experiences that you have. Right. Ever since, I guess, uh, about t- almost 20 years ago, I've you know, started networking when I started doing my first startup around Houston. And over the years, I've built up a fairly solid network of people in all sorts of roles, you know, bankers and financial advisors to other consultants to business owners and CFOs. What I'm doing now is a big chunk of marketing, going to events, going to networking events, following up with people, being on social media, the whole bit. So if you build up your network, that's really a very, very valuable thing to help you do something like this. And can we talk about one specific company that you helped and how we actually got connected was through a guy named Bill Bragman that we had on on a previous episode. Uh, He owns the Yacht Gear and he said you'd be a good person to talk to that you'd helped him. So could you give us an example of like what you did to help him and his business? Sure, sure. So one particular situation, uh, Bill's son, Miles, was he was managing the group that does some assembly and it's very, you know, tedious manual work, minimum wage type assembly people. And they had a couple of supervisors that had been promoted out of the minimum wage workers and they were getting paid just a little bit more than the 
the actual workers, but it wasn't going terribly well. You know, Miles came to me and said, Carl, I'm really frustrated. Supervisors argue with the people. Quality's not good. High turnover. I know we need to upgrade those positions, but we really don't have the margin in that product to, to upgrade those positions. Okay, well, tell you what, before you do that, let's just, let's try a little experiment here. And so I said, why don't you have a meeting with each of these supervisors once a week, 30 minutes, and I kind of outlined uh, how that meeting should go, and it kind of changed over time. So I'm like, I'll check back with you in, in a month. And so I checked back in a month. How's it going? Pretty good. You know, this, tweak this, tweak that. Okay, great. You know, second, third month, how's it going? Well, we kind of dropped off. Well, why don't you start it up, do it again? And once we got to the end of six months, Miles and I were going to grab lunch and we sat down for lunch. He said, Carl, you would not believe it. I am so psyched about these uh, supervisors. At this point, they're coming to me with ideas on how to make things better. You know, the whole attitude of the group's changed, the quality's up. You know, we haven't had turnover in like a month and a half, and it's just the whole area is transformed. And so that's uh, that's the type of thing that really makes me feel like I've accomplished something in the day. And that's got to be a good feeling. But can you tell us like what he ended up doing in, in these thirty-minute sessions? I mean, how did after six? It sounded like it wasn't working at all for five months, and then all of a sudden it worked on the sixth month. Well, for the first three months, there probably was no noticeable impact. And what you're really doing is building a relationship. You know, if you're at home and you've never talked to your kids, your wife, you don't know what's going on with them. I mean, you really don't have a you know, relationship. You've got a friend you never talked to. You just don't know what's going on. If you don't have a relationship, you don't have trust. If they don't trust you and, you know, feel confident that they can tell you something that you won't you know, snap at them or blame them or until you've got that trust, you know, they really can't kind of move to the next level. And so that's what we spent four or five months doing was building the trust so that once they said, okay, Miles is behaving in a certain manner, he's doing it consistently, he's listening to me, really wants to hear what I'm thinking. Then it got to the point where they're like, okay, okay. What they probably did, and I couldn't be in the meetings to see it, is they start with small stuff and they disclose small stuff. It might be a personal thing and see how Miles reacted. And eventually it got to the point where it's like, okay, I feel safe telling Miles that something's not working right. Maybe even he has to change his behavior or we have to change something in the company. The supervisors feel like they can do that safely. You basically, do you give them an outline of what to do on these conversations or just like, hey, what's up? Right. No, I've given very specific, you know, in the first meetings, you're really there to just listen. You're going to ask some questions and listen. You're not going to react. You can take notes, but that's it. And then after a couple of months, after you listen for most of the meeting, then you can kind of give some points that, you know, things that you'd like to see accomplished. And then there's a whole process for, for giving feedback. And you start with positive feedback, and it's done in a very specific format. And when you do it that way, it, it helps to build, build trust and self-esteem with the, the people. And it's like really down to the four and five and six months, really more of the five and six month point before you can even start to give corrective or negative feedback, if you will. Yeah, it's a very involved process to really go through the whole thing. 
but the results are, you know, and I've done it with a number of other companies as well. Before we get off, do you have a, another example of maybe what you did at Yak Gear or, or another company where you've helped them in general? So I had another client that came to me three years ago. They wanted to grow, but their revenues had been flat for three years. They just couldn't put their finger on what wasn't working. So I started working with them moderately intensively for about six months. And it, the first six months were just kind of putting a lot of the uh, groundwork in place, you know, making sure that we had reasonable accounting, so we could get financing, understanding who was in what position, clarifying roles a little bit, and, you know, all the six different major areas in my, I've got a 21-point framework is what I fully implement that. And after six months, sales took off, and then the next 12 months, sales for that company that had been flat for three and a half years doubled. So what's the magic formula? <laughs> I think it's a little beyond the, uh, the scope of the, you know, the next couple of minutes of conversation, but you've got to do all the different pieces. You've got to listen to people and coach them. You've got to give feedback in an appropriate manner. You've got to have a, you know, a mission and values that you use to make decisions. You have to have good reporting. You have to get good information build the relationships. It's all the different things so that you can build the processes for marketing and sales and operations and, and all the back office so that it all works together. And all of a sudden you've got teams that just rock and roll. And there you go. But is there any one last thing you want to leave with the entrepreneurs who are listening? And what's the best way for them to say thank you for doing the interview? I was going to tell them one thing I'd say, when you grow your business, when you, every time you double your company, everything breaks. All the systems and processes and everything, nothing fits anymore. You've outgrown your clothes. So keep that in mind as you grow your company quickly. And the best way to say thank you would probably just go to my webpage, abundant.com, A-B-U-N-D-E-N.com, and sign up for my email newsletter to learn more. All right. Well, thank you for, like I said, taking your what, last 30, 40 years and just compressing it. I think we got, got a lot of information there because usually I might get like one person who owns one company, maybe two. And then I, I think we got to learn a lot from your experiences there. So we appreciate you sharing them. Oh, happy to do so. And yeah, I hope I'm able to help uh, at least a few people. Oh, you at least helped me. So there you go. Oh, great, Austin. I, I thank you very much. And uh, I love your podcast. So thanks. All right. Thank you. What are you thankful for? If it's Millionaire Interviews, then would you mind doing us a favor so we can keep this show going? The only way we can keep it going is by increasing our subscriber count. So just take a minute and think about someone who would love to listen to this podcast as well. Now go ahead and send them a text. And before you press send, add this link to your message, millionaire-interviews.com forward slash subscribe. It'll redirect them to the podcast app so they can subscribe within, I don't know, six to nine seconds. We'd really appreciate it again if you share it with somebody because we can't keep it going without you and other listeners. People don't care who they are.